Machon Hartzion, an Orthodox Jewish organization, offers educational programs in Israel about the Jewish faith for everyone who loves the God of Israel. Machon Hartzion opens its doors of spiritual knowledge to Jew and Gentile alike. Machon Hartzion stands to share true spirituality with people of all faiths. Visit www.hartzion.org. That's H-A-R-T-S-I-O-N.org. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the nations. Welcome aboard to the Noahide Nation show here on Israel National Radio. I'm your co-host, Ray Patterson, and of course you all know my uh, friend and compadre and other co-host, Adam Penrod. Adam, how you doing? Ray, I'm doing really well. How about you? I'm doing okay. Now, when you say really well, uh, do, do we need to go into any, any details about my My, my uh, temperature is 97.6. Okay. So uh, anything above that might make me unwell. Okay. Anything below that might make me dead. So I, I, th- I think I'm holding at a pretty good level of wellness. No need to call the doctor in again. That's right. Okay, good. <laughs> well, listen, folks, we're glad that you decided to tune into our show this week because I believe, and I know Adam agrees, that we have an excellent show show on an excellent topic with even a more excellent guest. It's going to be specifically on the topic of the temple and what the temple means to us as non-Jews. I mean, uh, a great many of us uh, have a very good idea of what it means to the Jewish people, but not many of us have a very good understanding of just how important the temple is to us as non-Jews. And I want to kind of start the show off before we bring our guest in and start off by reading Isaiah 56 and uh, verses 3 through 7. And it starts off with, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Hashem speak, saying, Hashem will utterly separate me from his people, and not let the barren one say, Behold, I am a shriveled tree. For thus said Hashem to the barren ones who observe my Sabbath, and choose what I desire, and grasp my covenant tightly. In my house and within my walls I will give them a place of honor and renown, which is better than sons and daughters. Eternal renown will I give them, which will never be be terminated. And the foreigner who joined themselves to Hashem to serve him and to love the name of Hashem to become servants unto him, all who guard the Sabbath against desecration and grasp my covenant tightly, I will bring them to my holy mountain, and I will gladden them in my house of prayer. Their elevation offerings and their feast offerings will find favor on my altar, for my house of my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And now I'd like to go ahead and bring in our special guest to help us understand just what does all of this mean. And my friends, I am happy to introduce the International Director of the Temple Institute, uh, an absolutely wonderful man and a teacher of uh, Noahide uh, way of life, and also the gentleman who married my co-host Adam, and his lovely bride, Melinda, Rabbi Kayim Richman. Rabbi, please come in here. How are you doing? Shalom, Ray. Shalom, Adam. Shalom, Rabbi. 
You doing okay? Um, do I have to tell you exactly what my temperature is? is that no. <laughs> I am well, doing pretty well. I'm, I'm still alive. Oh, good, good. Spirits and middling, Baruch Hashem. Good. Well, listen, Rabbi, I just read uh, Isaiah 56, uh, 3 through 7, out of the Tanakh, uh, to, to all the folks listening. And I know that uh, this talks about the, the, uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, uh, having a place, in fact, a special place, in his house, and his house is actually the temple. And I know that some of the questions that would come up, which are very hot Noahide topics, for example, is the Sabbath. When Hashem tells us, uh, for, for those who observe the Sabbath and for those who do not desecrate the Sabbath, uh, give us an idea what that means. Well, the, that, that verse that you read certainly does seem to indicate that the uh, non-Jews also have a relationship with Shabbat. And you know that one of the things that, for example, Beit in, in Jerusalem seeks to establish in, in our generation is exactly what those parameters are, because we do believe that the Torah is universal and that there is a place within the framework of the commandments for the Gentiles as well. You know, there's actually another verse that I was thinking of uh, in Isaiah also, and it's actually at the very end of the, of the prophecy where God tells us in chapter 66, verse 23, it shall be that at every new moon and on every Sabbath, all mankind will come to prostrate themselves before me, says Hashem. Mm. And that's a very amazing verse because that seems to be indicating that on every Rosh Chodesh, every new moon and every Shabbat, the whole world, not only Jews, but all people are going to come to the Holy Temple of the Beit HaMikdash and and bow before Hashem. Now, where did we ever see that in the history of the first or even the second temple? Obviously, there's going to be a totally different configuration in the time of the third temple, and all mankind will be coming and observing Shabbat in the holy temple. Well, that's good to know. In fact, I, I wasn't as uh, familiar with that one as I am with the one that I, I just read. So I, It seems even more explicit than the one you read. Right. Yeah. Right, and, and I and I think where where it's really going, you know, where the issue is really going, you know, kind of we're starting kind of high with these prophecies that can be interpreted maybe one way or another by different people. But you know, we need to get to the, the basics, and the basic understanding is is something I guess kind of revolutionary from the thought process of many people, and that is that the Holy Temple fills a very central role and need and capacity in the life of all mankind not only the Jewish people, and it's a very common misconception that people think that the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the one that's built on Mount Moriah, is something that is particular to the Jewish people. This is not the case. So it's not a Jewish temple. It doesn't have any payouts or anything. <laughs> well, you know, um, it, it's, this, is, this is another misnomer when people say, you know, tell us about the Jewish temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It's the temple of Hashem. Right, and you know Isaiah says, says as we've mentioned, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now, the temple is administered by the Kohanim, by the priests of the Jewish people. The temple is run by the concepts of our holy Torah. The name of Hashem is sanctified within the temple, and and amplified. Um, through the commandments that God has given over to the people of Israel and for the Kohanim to uh, administer in the Holy Temple. But 
specifically, the Holy Temple itself is not a shul, it's not a synagogue, it's not a Jewish edifice. It is a, an, it is, it is a portal, as it were. I don't like to call it an edifice at all. It is a meeting place between, the, between man and the divine. And that clearly and surely is something that affects all people. The question is exactly, you know, what, where does everyone fit in with that? Just like not all of the Jews have the same function. There are Jewish people that are of Israelite descent, and then there are the Levites, and there are Kohanim. And they're not all the same. They don't all do the same uh, job, but they all serve Hashem. Right. And so, too, the Jewish people serve Hashem, and the non-Jews serve Hashem. And we are all together in it. And it was Solomon, we find in, in the Book of Kings, when he dedicated the first temple, he prayed to Hashem. And he said, anybody, and he said, and the stranger who comes from a far land, who f- comes and faces this house in prayer, you in your heaven will hear him and hearken and do the will of the stranger. So first and foremost, the Holy Temple is the focal point of the prayer of all mankind. You know, I think perhaps some of the confusion that you mentioned might come from the fact that when we read the Torah, um, we read, you know, Leviticus and, and, and uh, you know, um, even Exodus and whatever. It's always like, go say to the children of Israel, do this and do that, um, regarding building the temple and then even running the temple. Um, and so I, I suppose from a person reading it from that standpoint, it appears like the whole thing is geared towards usage and uh, benefit of, of, of the children of Israel. But, you know, what, okay, what, Adam, but you know that in, that in the time of the first temple and the second right. temple, you know that the Talmud and the Midrashim and the sources of the oral tradition clearly uh, relate how non-Jews also came to the temple right. and brought offerings and how their prayers were accepted. And then we read something very, very beautiful about the future temple in Isaiah 2 which is a reference to Messianic times, or let's say to the times that, that, are, that are leading up to the Messianic times, which, could, which are the times that we're in right now. And this tells us it will happen at the end of days in Isaiah 2. The mountain of the temple of Hashem will be firmly established as the head of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Hashem, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For from Zion shall go forth Torah and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. So this is a, a prophecy telling us that just as it was at one time, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem will once again become the focal point of all the spiritual aspirations and energy of the entire world. That, that, that's really interesting. You know, I, I heard uh, once that the keeping of the Torah by the Jewish people is much like uh, a person who's been in a, a terrible car accident, and uh, they're, they're in a full body cast. The only thing you see is the toe, and they, they see the toe, they, they wash the toe, they take care of the toe, and then they get out of the cast, and they forget. They go, oh, look, I have this uh, entire body here. It's, it, so it's like a, you know, the Jewish people without the temple you know, have only had a very small amount of the Torah to keep, but what you're saying is that it's not just the Jewish people that have, in a sense, been hidden away from their true potential and their true potential with, with reaching with Hashem and keeping mitzvot, but even the non-Jewish people. We're in that caste too until we, until we have that temple rebuilt. 
Absolutely. The more the more we study about the temple and about the spiritual essence of what the temple brings to the world, which is a a very heightened awareness of and cognizance of Hashem and our relationship with Him, and brings about a balance and a harmony. The more we realize that, the more that we realize that all of us are bereft spiritually. The Jewish people, for sure, are fish outside of water without the temple. But the whole world is basically functioning on such a, a small degree of what we could be if the temple would be in our midst. And again, why? This is not magic. This is not black magic. This is not some sort of, of smoke and mirrors or sleight of hand. This is because this is the one place on earth that Hashem chose to rest His presence. And that place is the place that from there goes forth the knowledge to the whole world that there really is a God in the world who cares about all of us and that we were put into this world to know who He is. And that's what's going on in the temple. It's a constant unfolding of, the, of this real and true dimension of our relationship with Him, which frankly is a hard thing to realize and to feel in, in this day and age because the presence of God is so hidden. And so we are functioning like robotic. We are functioning, all of us, on such a diminished level of, of, of um, reality and of, and of awareness and we were designed to live on a much higher level of fulfillment. And that's what the temple is all about. It's about raising all of humanity to a much higher level of fulfillment. Interesting. Uh, in, in fact, I was just thinking of some of the times that the uh, nations must appear at the temple. And, and if I'm correct, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's uh, supposed to be three times a, a year. And I was, you know, outside of Rosh Kadesh, which I just found out today, uh, that's uh, news to me. But uh, aren't the nations supposed to appear at the temple for three of the festivals? Well, he, here's the thing. It's Israel is commanded to make the pilgrimage, uh, the, uh, the pilgrimage festivals of the cycle of the sacred seasons of Hashem three times a year, and Pesach, Passover, and Shavuot, which we just celebrated, the Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot, the Tabernacles. Now, it's, it's Israel's commandment. However, in the time of the Temple, as you know, there was also the Ger Toshav. There was the resident uh, alien, as called in the Torah. There was basically the Ben Noach, who accepts upon himself the yoke of heaven, as manifest through the mitzvah, the commandments of the Ben Noach, also was able to live in the land together with the Jewish people and also came up to the temple. Now, specifically, there is a connection, a very strong connection, between the festival of Sukkot and all the nations of the world. Mm -hmm. Although it's true that we read in the, in the end of Isaiah where the prophet tells us in the name of Hashem that in the future it would certainly seem to us, according to what we read from the verse, that all flesh will come to bow before me, Hashem says, all mankind, every Shabbat and every Rosh Chodesh. But we know that there is an inexorable bond between the nations and the festival of Sukkot. And in fact, you recall that Zechariah the prophet tells us of a stern warning that is issued to those nations that will not come up to Jerusalem to, to the festival of Sukkot to celebrate because they are exhorted to, yes, come to, to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. And that's because there is, on a spiritual level, a very strong connection between the nations of the world and Sukkot, and indeed the offerings that are brought in the temple during the entire week of Sukkot 
number 70. There are 70 bullocks that are brought cumulatively over Sukkot, and our sages teach us that these 70 bullocks indeed are like an atonement for these 70 primordial nations of the world. And the nations of the world are extremely rooted in the concept of Sukkot in the Holy Temple. That's, that's uh, unbelievable. Can you, uh, do you have any idea what it is uh, they would be saying? Uh, are they giving us a blessing? Or what are they doing in terms of the sacrifice and the meaning to the nations? What does the sacrifice mean? Do you mean specifically regarding Sukkot or in general? Yeah, no. Uh, well, let's start with Sukkot first, and maybe we can expand on that into the general sense. But you mentioned the 70 bulls representing the 70 nations. What do those sacrifices... Well, the, whole, the whole concept of, of the offerings in the temple is something that is so widely misunderstood. And we would need so much time to really <laughs> do justice to that program because, unfortunately, we live in a society that has grown so distant from these concepts that we view them as being very you know, primitive, maybe barbaric, we apologize for them, and people tend to say, you know, well, you know, maybe that was then, but we certainly aren't going to be doing that again, and, you know, that can't be what God wants. And all of that kind of reasoning, I I feel and I find that all of that kind of apologetics basically comes from the fact that we're so out of touch and out of sync with what the Torah is really all about here that we tend to, you know, to think well, this can't be what Hashem has in mind anymore because, you know, we're not those type of people anymore. And, and, and maybe that was then, but now, you know, we're so much more advanced. It's because we keep trying to look at it and say, it's almost as if we're saying to ourselves, well, what does Hashem get out of this? He certainly doesn't get anything out of this. He certainly doesn't, you know, need this. And, and the mistake that we're making is in thinking that it's for Hashem. Mm-hmm. It's actually for us. Well, keeping and the whole purpose of, 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 the, of the concept, you know, the system of the offerings in the temple is that it brings about a certain uh, spiritual shift in the makeup of a person where he's able to realign his, his um, kind of his psyche and get back on the right page. And, and everything in the Torah is like that. Everything in the Torah is about Hashem basically reaching out to us with this advice, which is the mitzvot, and... and giving us the chance to um, find him in everything that we do and bind ourselves to the source of eternal life. That's what, that's what the Torah is all about. And the offerings in the temple are microcosm. They are basically a, a system. Just as it says in the, in, in the chapters of the Fathers, our great sages tell us that the offerings in the temple is one of the pillars upon which the universe stands. It is a, a concept that God hewed into the very fabric of creation an idea of the elevation of all physical life to a sense of divine purpose. And unfortunately, we live in a world today where we might have a lot of animal rights activists and we might have a lot of people who blur the distinction between men and animals, but we're not the same. We're not the same. And Hashem wants us to use every aspect of His creation in order to draw closer to Him. Now, having said all that, I have to say that there still remains a question, and that is, well, what is it about bringing an offering in the temple that is supposed to bring a person closer to Hashem? Mm-hmm. This is really the question. That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So, well, so what's the answer? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, again, everything that, that, that exists in the temple um, can be said to exist on so many different planes of reality at once, just as it is with every 
you know, aspect of Torah knowledge. There's so much to say. There's so much to explore. There's so many different dimensions. I mean, Adam and Mary, you know about Pardes, right? There's yes. Different levels of interpretation. Right. You know, there's the simple meaning, and there's the and there's the uh, homiletical meaning, and there's the mystical meaning. Well, so too when it comes to anything of of the, um, the vast array of the mitzvot, the commandments that Hashem gave us. Well, there's so many different ways of looking at it. There's the, the very simple idea that, well, this is the word of Hashem. This is what he commanded, and that's, that's good enough. You know, he said to do it. But then there's also the fact that, you know, there's all sorts of supernal worlds that are lined up and that are rectified through this, and there's all sorts of things that exist on an ethical level and a moral level of all the different things that are happening. So let's take the example of the offerings for a minute, and this is the way that I like to explain it. Again, this is just on one foot, literally, this is just kind of like in a, in a nutshell, okay? But, you know, there is a connection between man and the animal kingdom animal world and, and that connection is that man has something in common with the animals and that is we have an instinct we have a base kind of like an animal soul base drive you know we have that and the animals have that too but then man has something that the animals don't have man has a godly soul that was created in god's image now sometimes that godly soul becomes tarnished because we tend to get confused maybe and we kind of act like animals and everything becomes the same and, and maybe we, we miss the mark. That's what, that's what sin really is, as, according to Torah's definition, kind of miss the mark. We kind of blur and we need to become men again. Now you have to understand, when, whenever we explain, and I've talked about this a great deal over the years, whenever we want to explain the problem that many people have in relating to the korbanots, right, the offerings in the Holy Temple, Adam, you know where I think the whole problem stems from? Where's that? The, wor the word korban is inevitably, erroneously, invariably translated as sacrifice. And sacrifice is a very poor translation of a Hebrew concept that has nothing to do with what a korban really is. That's why I try never to use the word sacrifice. I try to say offering. Mm -hmm. Because if you look up the word sacrifice in the, dic in the dictionary you'll be given these words. Loss, deprivation, giving something up. But the Hebrew act of the korban comes from a root of kuf, resh, bet, which literally means to draw close, to become involved in intimate relationship. So the wisdom of Torah is trying to signal to us that something about bringing this offering on the altar is designed to bring a person closer to Hashem. And what remains for us to explore is, well, how does that work? Hmm. Why? What well, about bringing the offering is going to bring me closer to Hashem? Well, you know, Rabbi, this is a, a great place to bring us to the first break of the show. And we definitely want to have you back for the second half so that we can answer that question and more. So, folks, please stick around with us. We're going to take this hard break at the bottom of the hour. Please stick around. We'll see you on the other side. I gotta get in shape. I gotta call Michael Berzin at Jerusalem Fitness. 054-625-0269. Shalom. You've reached Michael Berzin, Jerusalem Fitness. You've taken the first steps toward health and wellness. Please leave us a message and we will get back to you to schedule your free consultation. 
That's Michael Berezin, Jerusalem Fitness, for classes, personal trainers, and more on Pierre Koenig Street in Jerusalem. Call Jerusalem Fitness at 054-625-0269. Camp Moshevav Wild Rose announces that the price of our Machach program for 10th graders is now subsidized and reduced to only $2,000 for four weeks, from July 22nd to August 18th. Now a great program has become even more attractive. If you're looking for a summer experience for your child, building friendships, learning, and having fun with campers from across the United States, call us at 847-674-9733 or visit www.moshavawildrose.org. Welcome back to the second half of the Noahide Nation show. We've been speaking with Rabbi Kayim Richmond, the International Director of the Temple Institute. And just prior to the break, we kind of closed out on the idea of the proper understanding of the Korban. So, Rabbi, why don't you pick it up from there and, and give us some more some of your wisdom on that. Well, basically, we're saying that... Um the problem with the word, with the translation of, of korban as sacrifice implies that it's all about giving something up. But there's much, much more involved with the korban, the offering, because it's supposed to be bringing us closer to Hashem. That's what the word really means. Now, how, how does that work exactly? Well, another insight into this concept can be revealed through another great secret of Torah, which, which is basically as follows. You see, a lot of people look at the whole uh, subject of the offerings in the temple and they say, wow, Hashem must be so, you know, vengeful and wrathful, like picture kind of like an angry Old Testament deity, you know, like slaughter me up an animal and I won't be satisfied until I sell its blood and then I'll forgive you. And it's, that's not a Jewish concept at all. And I'll tell you, it's not even true, because the interesting thing is, as you probably know, and as many of our listeners know, the depth of um, beauty of learning in Hebrew, learning Torah in Hebrew and that blessing, we know that every word is replete with tremendous amount of meaning. And the way that we understand the character, the nature of Hashem himself, of God, is through his names. His names carry tremendous amount of significance, and there are different names that the Torah uses, and those apply to his attributes. You know, there's the name of Hashem, which we call Hashem reverentially, the name, right, which is made up of four letters. Right. It's a name that we don't pronounce, and it means the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that name, that's spelled Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, it consistently is an, a, um, an aspect of mercy, of love, of chesed, of kindness. Whereas the name Elohim consistently denotes harsh judgments, more of a strict, a strict type of um, attitude. Now, all throughout the entire book of Leviticus, this is an amazing fact that people are not aware. All throughout the entire book of Leviticus, from beginning to end, every time the offerings are mentioned, don't forget Leviticus is the manual for the offerings. Are you aware of the fact that the name Elohim does not appear? Yes, the it's amazing. The entire book of Leviticus only uses the name of Hashem, which is the name of mercy. And that already shows us that there's something about the process of bringing the offerings in the temple. This is an experience of Hashem broadcasting to us His love and His chesed and His compassion. And it's not about some sort of wrath or some sort of anger. And basically, you know, I, I want to try to be brief because this, I could go on on this really forever and ever, but the <laughs> idea is that, that it's not about 
lost, it's not about giving something up. If, if, if the temple is built now, when the temple is built, if it's only about giving something up, well, I would be bringing something to the altar that I can't uh, do without, and then I want to give up for Hashem, I would have to bring my portable computer or my Blackberry or something like that. But it's not only about giving up. It's, there's something else that's going on when, when a person brings an animal to the offering. And after all, I could say, well, of course I'll be bringing my, my, my computer, because we don't live in an agrarian society today. Most people don't raise animals. So if I'm going to give up something for Hashem, it will have to be something else. But here's another, another tremendous secret in the Torah that I, I like to bring this in here also. There's an expression that's used about many of the offerings. It's so hard to understand. It says the offerings are a sweet savor unto the Lord, right? Right. But that's also very strange to, to, you know, contemporary Western ears. Like, what does that mean? Hashem likes the smell of burning meat more than he likes lasagna or pizza? Like, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> it's, a, it's a sweet savor. So the great Rav, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, amongst others, brings this and explains this in such a beautiful and remarkable way. And he explains, based on everything that we've said until now, that because a person is an admixture containing the animal soul and the godly soul, and we do get mixed up, and don't forget that the Ramban, for example, Nachmanides explains that one of the things that's going on when a person brings an offering to the altar is that he's having kind of like a vicarious experience of death because he realizes that, you know, by right, if Hashem would be practicing Islamic law, you know, like off with his hand on the spot, right. that should be us. But instead, because his name appears in Leviticus only as Yud Kevavki, as Hashem, he waits for us to realize all of this on our own, to return to him to, with teshuva, with repentance. And when that happens, there's a process that's going on within the consciousness of a person. It's a process of sifting. It's a process of realignment where the animal soul descends to its proper proportion. And the godly soul uh, ascends and takes its proper place. And that, Rabbi Hirsch explains, is the sweet savor that mm. God senses, as it were, when he's able to say, this person is becoming a human being again. In other words, everything that goes on by a person bringing this offering and coming, well, how does it bring a person closer to Hashem? Because it makes us realize the preciousness of life. It makes us realize that we are not animals. And, and, and again, everything in the Torah is anthrocentric. We are, man is at the center of creation, and everything in this world was created for one person to be able to come a little closer to Hashem and to realize that there really is a God that cares about us very, very much, and for us to be able to ascend spiritually. I feel like I'm kind of cutting some corners and not really doing this justice, but we're taking something about which thousands and thousands of pages could be written and trying to condense it into a very a very short thing. But suffice it to say that the you know we we are a little bit out of touch because of everything that we've been through for two thousand years as a people. How much more so the nations of the world? We all need to reconnect and realize that Hashem's wisdom is perpetual. It's forever. It's infinite. And the greatest kindness that he's done for us is giving us the concept of the holy temple he doesn't need it like when solomon built the first temple and he again we mentioned before the dedication ceremony he said hashem my lord the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot possibly contain you how much less this house hashem doesn't need it but we do we do need a focal point a place to realize you know what that Hashem really is in this world and really does care about this world. And every single person, Jew, non-Jew, who came to the Holy Temple was able to go away from there with a renewed spirit, with, with recharged batteries coming out from there, realizing that Hashem really does love each and every one of us. There's Pirkei Avot, the chapters of the Fathers, chapter 5, tells us that there were 10 miracles going on constantly in the Holy Temple. 
Now, what does that mean? It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just words. It means that every single person, you didn't have to be a spiritual giant when you came there. You were really able to see clearly, wow, there really is a God of the world. He created the world and is really here for me right now. And he cares about me. I have a relationship with him. So it sounds like, to me, Rabbi, that so long as there is not a temple in this world, that we, you know, that even no matter how much uh, praying and setting Torah you do, there's, there's, you're, you're in some way you're, you're cut off from your potential. You're cut off from, uh, you know, uh, you know, like you said, downplaying the animal aspect of ourselves and bringing up that divine aspect. Is, is that correct? Exactly, exactly. Now you can come and work for the Temple Institute. <laughs> well, in, in speaking of uh, your wonderful work at the Temple Institute, uh, I know that there are a number of uh, different ideas as to how the uh, Third Temple is going to come about. Uh, of course, we uh, are, are all familiar with Ezekiel, and so therefore there's many who believe that it will be rebuilt there's others who believe that it's going to come from the heavens. It'll literally fall out of the sky. And then there's still those who believe that it will be unearthed, as in the case of it being the original temple, which was, of course, the tabernacle in the desert. So maybe you can share with us your idea. I think I already know where we're going with this, but I, I really do want to have you share some of your, your work and what I believe to be worthy work at the Temple Institute. Well, thank you, Ray. Um, I'd, I'd like to mention to the listeners, those who are not aware, that they can always visit us online at www.templeinstitute.org, and I believe that it is probably the most informative site in the English language on the uh, subject of the Holy Temple, spiritually, physically, uh, historically, uh, what it really is all about, and the Temple Mount as well. We have many educational resources there, and of course people can actually visit the Temple in Sudan, Jerusalem to see the actual temple vessels that are being created today for the Holy Temple, which we hope will be rebuilt soon. So I'll tip my hand to you and, and tell you that, that um, of these various opinions, clearly um, the position of our organization, uh, which we believe is the Torah's actual uh, halachic imperative, we believe that the Holy Temple is a mitzvah. It is a commandment for us to build. We believe that all of the commandments are for uh, the people of Israel to fulfill. We believe that um, clearly halacha, the Rambam, for example, the great codifier of Jewish law, explains to us that it is a positive commandment for the people of Israel to build Hashem's house. Now, what I think happened is that over the long and bitter and actually sometimes not so bitter exile, the Jewish people developed a very very kind of idiosyncratic defense mechanism where certain things became relegated to some sort of mystical, nebulous kind of never-never-land attitude where people began to think, you know, look at the geopolitical reality. Okay, the Temple Mount is occupied by Islam. What are you going to do about that? How is that going to come about, short of a miracle? How can you talk about building the temple and not causing World War III? And all of this kind of thing. And people over the years began to develop a very idiosyncratic type of philosophy, whether it was conscious or subconscious, where they began to believe that this cannot come about without some sort of divine intervention. It's got to fall from heaven. Mashiach has to come and, and do it. But it, it can't be that we're just supposed to get up and do it. 
Well, the fact is, Ray and Adam, that, that this is what the Torah actually teaches us, that we are indeed commanded to build the temple. So there may be a, a difficult obstacle there politically, but what bothers me is when people try to explain that there's a religious impediment. I don't mind if people say, okay, there's a political problem here, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with that. But it bothers me when people say, no, there's a religious problem, we, we, we're not able to do that, that's not what the Torah wants. That's not true. The Torah mandates us in our generation right now to rebuild the Holy Temple. That's amazing. I realize that's not yeah. so simple. I, re- I realize it's a big, it's a, it's a mouthful. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not advocating any sort of, any, any sort of confrontation. But the fact is, the Torah is. And we need to understand what that means. Well, the Torah very much is, is a, very much about doing. And it seems like with something as important as this, it's also got to be about doing and about us uh, getting there and getting our hands dirty and doing what we can at the very least to exactly. uh, bring it about. Exactly. Ray, I want to mention something because you brought up a very interesting point, Ray. You asked, what about the original tabernacle? Right. Um, The truth is that we know exactly where the original tabernacle is. We know where the pieces of the tabernacle are. But historically and halakhically, from the time that David and Samuel established that Mount Moriah is indeed the shoulder of Benjamin and Judah, as it's called in Sefer Devarim, Deuteronomy, uh, from the time that they established that the many tens of times throughout the Torah where Hashem says, the place that I will choose, the place that I will show you, that that indeed is a reference to the very place that he chose from the very beginning of time, Mount Moriah, right? Mm-hmm. From the time that, the, that that was selected and chosen, the sanctity became permanent forever, and the tabernacle, for all practical purpose, really became like ancient history for the Jewish people, the commandment that we are, are faced with, that is incumbent upon us in every generation, is indeed to build the Holy Temple on the very spot of the first and the second temple. Wow. I, was... I just want to say this, because I, I realize that what I'm saying sounds, you know, like quite, quite an extreme thing for a lot of people. I want to say this. You know what? We live in a time where we are confronted by a lot of forces in the world, and there's a lot of conflict, and, a, and what it all boils down to is whether or not Hashem is going to be sovereign, whether or not Hashem is going to be given the honor, or whether man is going to be given the honor. That's what this battle is really all about. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The Holy Temple plays a very central role in all of that. The prophet Haggai says that Hashem promises, he says, in this place I will grant peace. And everybody's always talking about peace and do everything for peace and give peace a chance. Well, you know what? If people really believe in peace, they would build a temple because the Torah teaches us that that is the secret of peace and the only time in human history when there wasn't only one war anywhere on the face of the globe within yeah. the first 40 years of King Solomon's temple. That's what the temple does. It brings peace and harmony to the whole world. And you know what? I don't have any problem with the Muslims. I don't have any problem with the Arabs. They're extremely candid about their plans. They, they want to destroy Israel. Okay? Yeah. They don't hide that. But you know what? It's not their fault. It's our fault. Because if we were the people that we were supposed to be, Ray and Adam, if we were bringing the light of Hashem to the world, they would come down from the mountain. They would say, could you please rebuild the Holy Temple and bring the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, back into the world? We don't know how to use this mountain. Please take over. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and uh, you know, who knows? Maybe one day they will. Let Let me ask you this: the This is a little bit of a segue, but it goes back to an earlier point. The idea that the Messiah will build the temple. 
um, a lot of the things, even the Sanhedrin, the reestablishment of the Sanhedrin is, is left to the to the Messiah. The rebuilding of, of the temple is, is is left to the Messiah. What is the what is the Messiah's real relationship? Because you said that's not the the thing. The thing is, we, you know, we I, have I, I don't think that's accurate. I don't yeah. think this is an accurate portrayal. I don't think the, the building of the temple is left to the Messiah. I believe that what the sources really tell us is that if the Messiah comes and he finds that the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet, yeah. he'll see to it that it's rebuilt. But there is such a scenario as the temple being built without the Messiah. Indeed, what I, what I really think is that the building of the temple is the catalyst that will show Hashem that we're so serious about doing the right thing and about wanting to reinstate his servants that that will cause that to happen. But this you should know that the sages of the Jerusalem Talmud, they actually established that the order of events should be that the temple is rebuilt first and then the Messiah arrives. Mm. That's, a, that's a, a very interesting. In fact, I'm still sitting here kind of shaking with your, your statement about, oh, we know exactly where the tabernacle is at, <laughs> you know, especially because we know guys like Vendel Jones. I mean, uh, these are people who have been you know looking for it, people who are trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. So it caught me completely off guard. I, I, was, I was unable to, to, to speak after you said that. But speaking of the uh, vessels, can you share with us some of the vessels that you've already created for the soon-to-be-built temple? Well, one of the basic activities of the Temple Institute in terms of raising consciousness and preparing for the building of the temple is the actual construction of the vessels that can be used in the temple, which are not replicas or models or copies, but actually kosher for use in the Holy Temple made according to the exact requirements. It's a, it's a tremendous undertaking. It's been going on for over two decades, and thus far we have created the majority of the vessels that are necessary for the resumption of the divine service, including the major vessels of the temple, like the menorah and the, and the table of the showbread and the golden incense altar. And just very recently, last week indeed, we unveiled to the world the newest vessels that have been created. You can see them on the templeinstitute.org website on the events page two beautiful golden frankincense vessels that holds the frankincense that is held on the table of the 12 loaves of the showbread, as you can find described in Leviticus 24. And this is all available to be viewed if one were to go to Jerusalem? Yes, absolutely. That's uh, uh, amazing. How can people help you, uh, Rabbi? I, I know that you know going to the website and, of course, you know going. I'm sure they, you know, maybe you sell a ticket to get into the place. But uh, how much more so can uh, people who are wanting to see the temple built? Uh, what can they do to help? Well, there are different things that certainly need to be addressed in our generation. Is first of all. You know, we are all victim of a tremendous amount of misinformation. You know, we just heard from President Obama in Cairo that Israel's presence, uh, even on the outskirts of Jerusalem, is illegitimate. And, you know, he didn't even mention the fact that this is the land of David and Solomon, that this is the place that Hashem chose for the people of Israel to allow the light of the divine presence to come into the world. So the first thing is education for people to speak out and learn about the function of the temple, the function of Israel and her land, how the word Zion means excellence in Hebrew, because when the people of Israel are dwelling in their land around the temple of God, that brings a state of excellence to the entire world. And, you know, you know the whole show that we wanted to talk about today is the relation of the temple to the nations. Well, it's not a Jewish thing. It's about improving the lot of the entire world. 
uh, obviously those people that feel spiritually inclined and, and called and motivated to help the work of the Temple Institute are invited to do so and can learn about how to do that uh, at the website. And again, I think that first and foremost the idea is a spiritual revolution for people to realize that this is the time for all of us to be concerned about restoring the honor of Hashem. Well, I, I can't help but agree with that. I was curious, too, on your the Temple Institute website, uh, I know that you travel all over the world uh, speaking about the Temple to audiences. Is there a schedule available on the website that people can see where you're going to be speaking and you know when and where and how they can be involved? At the moment, there there isn't. Um, I also would would uh, mention at this point uh, the sister site of the Temple Institute, which is UniversalTorah.org, where we have weekly live stre- streaming um, on demand video lessons on the Temple and many other subjects as well. Um, my next trip to the United States, with God's help, is going to be in the month of November. And as soon as we have those dates and and locations, that will be posted. Okay, and maybe you can help me out because I'd be happy to post it on our Noahide Nations website as well. And that way the, you, the folks can that are visiting our site can see where you're going to be and hopefully make arrangements to get there. Because I myself have seen you speak. I know, Adam, you have as well, Absolutely. and a lot of people have. And you're an, a, an amazing individual when it comes to explaining the, the need for the temple. In fact, one of the statements that I'm, I always get chills from is that if the nations knew how valuable the temple was to mankind and to they themselves, they would not only help build it, they would provide the army to stand around it to protect it. Right, that's actually a direct quotation from words of our sages in the Midrash Rabbah on the Book of Numbers, where they said if they only would have known that, they never would have allowed it to be destroyed. Well, and you're the man to to hear it from. So I'm looking forward to your visit, Baruch Hashem, that it happens in uh, uh, November. And uh, please do get me the schedule, and I'll make sure I get it up on the website as quickly as possible so as many people can make make arrangements to get there. Please uh, let me, and from Adam as well, thank you for uh, you participating in this interview. I think you've, you've shed a lot of light and provided much-needed understanding to the uh, non-Jewish community. Don't you think, Adam? I mean, I'm oh, just like, Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, this is uh, important because as Noahides, I think one issue is sometimes we wonder, well, what can we really do as Noahides? Is there anything for us to do? Right. I, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, sometimes we, we compare ourselves to the Jewish people and, and, and uh, we see the, the great contrast. And it seems like they're always doing something. But what about us? Is there something we can be doing? And it's really important that the Noahides, you know, begin to realize that they're not being left out, but that the temple is for them, and that right. they are a very integral part of this, and, and no one can keep them out, because Hashem himself is calling them to come to the temple. Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Well, that's a, a great place to end the show. I should say, sadly, to end the show. But, Rabbi, once again, thanks so much. And uh, continued blessings from Hashem on your work with the Temple Institute and in your travels. And I certainly look forward to seeing you personally again. And I know Adam does as well. Absolutely. Every time I mention your name, he's got a big old grin. So, Thank you so much for having me, and may Hashem continue to bless both of you with the very important work that you are doing for the whole world to come to a greater knowledge of Torah and Hashem, and may you just go from strength to strength. 
Well, Amen. and thank you. And, and friends, we appreciate you being with us for this entire hour. It has been a great one. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. And in the meantime, please, please always look to the heavens for your help from Hashem, because I guarantee he is always looking out for you. See you next week. Shalom Yotzeh. Oi, we're late to the airport, Harvey. If only I had called Menasha Sofer's airport service. Cut down on time at the airport. Introducing the ultimate airport experience by Menasha Sofer's airport service. The VIP meet and assist shuttle guarantees a completely stress-free traveling experience. Tell them you heard about it here at Israel National Radio. Online at msoferairport.com. M-S-O-P-H-E-R airport.com. Mikvahcalendar.com is your rabbinically approved personal guide to Torah to Mishpacha observance. Times and dates are automatically calculated and explained in English and Hebrew. Anywhere you are, sunrise and sunset are automatically adjusted. Receive email or text messages for important dates and times. May divine blessings of spiritual and material well-being continue to rain down and permeate your marriage and your home. Visit www.mikvahcalendar.com. That's M-I-K-V-A-H-C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com.